Good morning, everybody. Please take a seat. It's lovely, lovely winter sun coming through the windows, isn't it? Which means half of your faces are completely obscured to me because sort of this side's white and the other side can't, can't see it. Um, if you're too warm, feel free to take off your jumper. We're, we're struggling to get the heating quite right. Sometimes it's freezing here, sometimes it's way too hot. So don't feel ashamed about taking your, your jacket off. I might do so halfway through. And we'll see how we're going. Um, please t- keep uh, Philippians chapter 4 open. That's on page 1180. And uh, you'll have a little yellow handout to give you an idea of where I'm going over, over the next few moments. But before we launch in, shall I lead us together in prayer? Jesus, be my guide and hold me to your side. That's our prayer, Father that we'd be led by the Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks to us now. Help us to hear his voice. Would he be our joy and our peace? In Jesus' name, amen. People can do all sorts of strange things in order to find peace. Sarah Winchester is one such person. Sarah Winchester was the widow of a gun company owner called William Winchester. You might have heard of Winchester Rifles. She's the widow. And according to folklore, she believed she would never die as long as work on her house never, ever ceased. So for 38 whole years, from 1884 all the way through to her death in 1922, her mansion was on constant construction, expansion, and renovation. It's been estimated she spent more than $70 million in today's money. She ordered teams of builders to work around the clock, night and day, so that in the end, her house spanned six acres, containing 160 rooms, 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 52 skylights, 47 fireplaces, 40 staircases, and one shower. (laughs) She was looking for peace. She was looking for a sense of control. But of course, she found neither. And when she died, and she did die, the builders abandoned their tools mid-task and her house was left completely unfinished. If you walk around it today, many of the doorways and staircases, they just lead to dead ends. They're just brick walls. There'll be many of us here this morning looking for a sense of peace. There'll be things in our own lives that, that appear to be out of control. It might be things to do with our health. It might be things to do with work. It might be certain relationships. It might be things here at church. And the question is this. How will we respond in these circumstances? Some of us, we worry. We're worriers. We churn over our concerns over and over and over in our heads. We struggle to sleep. We fill ourselves up with anxiety. Or maybe we turn to alcohol or binge TV to try and numb the feeling. We worry. Maybe you're a worrier. Others of us, we're activists. And we take action. We try and control things that are causing concern to us. So we try and control our environment. Uh, we work through the night. Uh, we, we try and control people, even. And ironically, that, that rarely creates more peace. Whichever it is, anxiety, worry, or control, our own solutions to find peace are often like those stairways in the Winchester mansion. They're dead ends. They will not... Give us peace. Well, as we've been learning throughout this term, Paul's been writing to a church in desperate need of peace. 
Uh, For the Philippians, things seemed out of control. They were facing state opposition from without. They were facing false teaching from within. And and all the stress of this seems to be putting some strain on their own relationships within the church. Uh, Cracks were beginning to form within the fellowship itself. And it's into that situation that Paul writes, telling them to rejoice, telling them to have peace. How? How? How can we enjoy peace when everything seems to be out of control? Well, there are three things you'll see on your handout. If we want to enjoy peace in the church, we need to have united minds. United minds. In verse 2, since Paul is addressing a particular disagreement in the Philippian church, look down with me in your Bibles to verse 2. Paul writes, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syndike to agree with each other in the Lord. It seems as if at some point in the past these two women had something of a falling out. We don't know exactly what, but it's unlikely to be anything important. Perhaps their characters just just clashed. They just rubbed one another up the wrong way, as we sometimes do. And maybe they disagreed on on strategy and direction in the church. Uh, Perhaps they saw one another as rivals for their positions of power. Perhaps they were deaconesses. Either way, their their disagreement must have been going on for some time now, because Paul has heard about it all the way over in Rome. And we can imagine that within the Philippian church, people might have begun taking sides, uh, are, you, are you with Euodia on this? Yeah, yeah, we're with Euodia. Oh, are you with Syndicate on this one? Yeah, we're in the Syndicate camp. And factions might have begun forming, depending on whose gossip you, you listen to. So you can imagine the day when Epaphroditus arrives in Philippi, and he's got a new letter from Paul, so the whole church is gathered together, and he's reading through the letter. You can imagine Epaphroditus reading chapter 1, reading that some people are acting out of rivalry and envy. And Euodia, she's sitting on the front row, and she's going, yep, that's Syndicate, all right. Rivalry and envy, that's her. And then when Paul hits chapter 2, he calls the church out for, 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 for doing things out of selfish ambition. And Syndicate, she's at the back going, yeah, sounds a lot like Euodia to me. Selfish ambition, that's her. And then Epaphroditus hits chapter 4. And the whole church is gathered. And he reads, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syndicate to agree in the Lord. And suddenly everybody's eyes are on those two women. It must have been horribly embarrassing. But Paul's, Paul's aim here isn't to name and shame. He doesn't want to uh, just make them beetroot red and that's the end of it. No, he wants to protect the church from disunity and disintegration. I don't know, there's so many people here today, I don't know, but this might be a live issue for particular individuals here today. Perhaps there are disagreements amongst us which as yet are unresolved. Maybe this is a big reason why we go to bed at night and we don't feel peace. Well, you'd be glad to hear I don't have any particular names to name. I won't be calling people out and everyone's eyes will look at you. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? But if there are disagreements within us, we can't ignore them. They say cracked relationships are a bit like cracked windscreens. If you ever had a chip on your windscreen, it can be tiny, can't it? Just a, just a few millimetres across. Ignore it, you think. It's tiny. But overnight, it cracks 
and it spreads across the entire windscreen and the whole integrity of the vehicle is threatened. Well, Paul's solution to this disunity, to the disintegration, if you like, of the church is to remind these women that despite appearances, they are very much bound together in Christ. Literally, verse 2 reads, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syndicate to have the same mind in the Lord. And if you've been here this term, we've seen that the mind of Christ is a really big theme in this letter. You remember that beautiful hymn back in chapter 2, where Paul uh, declares that Christ, uh, being in very nature God, did not consider his status something to be exploited to his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. That's Christ's mind. And if we're united to Christ, that's our mind too. There's no room in the church for rivalries and factions. There's no room for pride and petty grudges. Because in Christ, we have a united mind. But notice in verse 3, it isn't just Yodia and Syndicate who need to sort this out amongst themselves in a quiet corner. No, others in the church are called to get involved, to make sure there is peace. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Many of us, we're kind of hardwired to avoid confrontation, aren't we? We, we, we don't like that, particularly if we're British. We, we just don't do confrontation. But here Paul exhorts these individuals in the church to confront the elephant in the room. To take these two women aside and bring them together to sit them down until they see sense. Until they see their united mind. So Paul reminds them of all the things they have in common. They've got the same mind. They've got the same past. They, they've contended together for the cause of the gospel. They even have the same future. That Their names are both written in the book of life. They have so much in common. So how dare we take what God has united and then try and divide it? May I ask you, is there anyone here today you need to make peace with? Is there anyone you need to approach after the service and and try to come to the same mind with? Our instinct might be, and and this is my instinct, to to, to step back just to avoid the people who might rub us up the wrong way. But if we are contending with one another in here, we will not be contending for the gospel out there. We must take a step forward To enjoy peace in the church, we must have united minds. But secondly, on your handouts, to enjoy peace in all circumstances, we need to have prayerful minds. Look down with me at verse 4. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not, do, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
We've heard already all the reasons why the Philippians may well have been anxious. Lots of things were out of control. Their apostle, Paul, was on death row. That can't really be nice. Uh, State-sponsored opposition was ramping up. False teaching within the church is causing all this confusion amongst them. They're feeling insecure. And they're wondering, look, is there any future for this church? Is there any future for us? And we've seen Paul's response throughout the letter has just been the same, hasn't it? Rejoice. 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 Again, I'm going to say it. Rejoice. It's almost become boring. If you come here every week, Andy keeps saying the same thing. It's just rejoice and have joy. That's the point. Our future is not determined by our present circumstances, but by the unshakable work of Jesus Christ. We are united with him. We have died with him. We will be raised with him. When Jesus returns with power to bring everything, everything under his control. So just think about that for a moment. If Jesus is in total control, then it's okay for us not to be. Some of us, when we feel insecure, when we feel anxious, we start trying to manipulate events and our environment and people. We can become unkind, we can become uncourteous, we can become unyielding, we can become controlling. But if, verse 5, we know that the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near, then we'll be gentle. It'll be evident to everyone, both inside the church and outside the church. We can be gentle. If we know the Lord is near, verse 6, we'll be prayerful. Because instead of trying to just control everything ourselves, we'll hand everything over to him who's really in control. Instead of churning over with anxiety, we'll hand ourselves over to him who is almighty. Instead of feeling sorry for ourselves and moping around, we'll be able to be thankful. And just look at this promise given to them in verse 7. It's beautiful. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Strange to think that God has peace. God has peace, I guess, because he knows the end result of all things. Everything's in his control. God doesn't fret or worry about anything. And it is that peace that he possesses that he offers to us. Because we too know the end result of all things, don't we? We might not know the stuff going on in the middle, but we know what will happen in the end. That peace is going to guard us in even the most painful of circumstances. The story is told of a very wealthy art connoisseur who was was after the perfect representation of peace. And uh, he looked around all the art galleries, but he couldn't find anything that satisfied him. So he held a big competition, a big art contest, to try and find a, a masterpiece about peace. And uh, the, the challenge, it stirred up uh, the, in, the imagination of all the artists in the land, and, and, and paintings arrived from everywhere for this competition. On the day of the competition, everyone had gathered, and, and, and all of the, uh, the finalists were on the stage. But there were just two paintings that were left failed. These were the, the two finalists. And they, they ripped off the veil of the first painting, and it was beautiful. It was a, a mirror-smooth lake with these green willows lazily brushing the water. There's there a gentle moon hanging in the sky, slowly illuminating everything. 
And on the green bank was uh, a group of sheep, quietly, safely, serenely, uh, sort of grazing the grass. Surely, surely that was the perfect picture of peace. And after a long period of contemplation, people standing like this, going like that, that's what people do, isn't it? The veil of the second painting was, was torn off, and the crowd gasped in shock. It was a tumultuous waterfall uh, cascading down this rocky precipice. You could almost feel the cold, uh, penetrating spray as you looked at it. These, these storm-gray clouds threatened to explode with lightning and wind and rain. And in the midst of all that thundering noise and bitter chill, there was this little gnarled tree just leaning out over the waterfall. And in the elbow of, of, one, of the, uh, one of the branches, a little spindly branch, there's a little bird's nest. And there was a bird there, content and undisturbed by its surroundings, resting on her eggs. Her eyes were closed, her wings were covering her little ones. And she manifested peace that transcends all earthly turmoil. I notice on Wednesdays when I'm clearing up, clearing up after, after small groups, I often find people have left their prayer requests lying around and um, I'm too nosy to, not to look. And uh, too often I notice people are, are praying to be airlifted out of their difficult circumstances. God is able to do that, but he's never promised to do that. Most of the time, God doesn't take us out of our difficult circumstances. Instead, he gives us his peace that we might endure them. To enjoy peace in all circumstances, have a prayerful mind, knowing that we're secure under the wings of the Almighty. But thirdly, finally, to enjoy peace, have changing minds. Changing minds. Look down at verse 8 with me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. There is a war which has been raging now for 2,000 years. And it's the war within the heart of every single Christian believer. There's a ceaseless conflict between my old sinful nature and my new spirit-led nature. And they push and they jostle and they fight for control of my life. And this battle, we're told, is fought first and foremost in our minds. Which is why Paul says here, think about such things. At Christmas, we always talk about, oh, what you have for Christmas lunch. And we, people say, well, you've got to watch what, what you put into your body. You've got to watch what you put into it. Because we know if, if we eat all the mince pies, it's not going to be good for us. Because we know that if we put junk in, you get junk out. If we expect to see victory in this internal war, it matters what we put into our minds. If we put junk in... We'll get junk out. So this list of qualities here in verse 8 is a description of what we ought to be feeding our minds. In the past, this list has been used to explain why Christians shouldn't engage with the world's culture. 
don't read novels, don't watch TV, don't go to the cinema. And that's pretty ironic, because Paul stole this list wholesale off pagan philosophy. Yes, our our world opposes Christ, but not everything in our surrounding culture is evil. Paul is using this well-known list of ideals to lift our eyes to someone in particular. Someone full of truth and nobility. Someone who embodies righteousness and purity. Someone who personifies beauty and everything that's admirable. Someone who alone is excellent and worthy of praise. As you, lit, as you read through this list of ideal qualities, it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He incarnates, he embodies all of them. Jesus fulfills and redeems the best our culture has to offer. So we pour over newspapers, we burn through TV box sets, we faff around on Facebook, we, we critically engage with our culture, we feed our minds on those things. But are we feeding our minds with Christ? Are we making time to chew on his word? There's an old sim- hymn, we, we often sing it, Be Thou My Vision. And there's a particular line in that hymn which always makes me stop. It goes, Be thou my best thought by day or by night. I've got to ask myself sometimes, is is Christ my best thought? If we desire to see victory in the fight against sin, we would do well to meditate on Christ. Not just what he's done, but who he is. His person his attributes, his qualities. It's no use having right theology if it doesn't create in us right living. Uh, Contemplation should lead to action. Theory should lead to practice. So Paul ends here in verse 9 by saying, whatever you've heard or received or, or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. One of my favourite bands is called Bright Eyes. They've broken up uh, now. But uh, the singer, Conor O'Burst, he's not a Christian, but in a particular song of his, he, he nails this truth. The song's called Old War. And the lines go something like this. So hurry up and run to the one that you love. He'll make war, old war, on who you were before and claim all that is spoiled in your heart. As we run to Christ, the God of peace will wage war on our old sinful natures and slowly begin to change our spoiled hearts and minds. There's a little diagram on your handout there. It might be helpful, but peace begins with just the individual Christian having a changing mind. But the effects of that peace will be seen throughout the church as we become more prayerful and ultimately as we see the church uniting with a single mind against a hostile world. At the start of World War II, there was a French train carrying dispatches to headquarters. It was forced to go at top, top speed on very rough terrain because it had to reach its destination within an hour. The engineer was the bearer of the dispatches and and his wife and child were both in the train with him. Every moment threatened to throw the train over the embankment and over a bridge uh, because as it rolled from side to side, as it leapt at times almost in the air, as it rushed past stations, people inside held their breath. Often they cried out in terror as it sped along. It was going so fast. But there was one person on that train 
he knew nothing of those fears. And that was the child of the engineer. She was happy as Larry and laughed aloud when she was asked if she was afraid. She, she looked up and answered, why would I be afraid? My father is at the engine. Whatever our circumstances as a church, whether threats from without, whether threats from within, know this. Our Father in heaven is at the engine. And our God of peace wants us to enjoy his peace, whatever comes our way. Brothers and sisters, think about these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you want us to enjoy peace. Thank you that you are the God of peace and you extend that same peace to us. Father, please would we look beyond our present circumstances and look to you and look to our salvation so that whatever comes our way, we might be secure and content to hand over to you control. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.